So right now, in this very moment, there is an unseen war that is waging every day, every second, for your mind. Your mind is high real estate. Did you know that? It's high real estate. And uh, there's probably more access right now to your mind than there's ever been in human history. Um, it used to be that you were only influenced maybe by a few people. But now you're influenced by anybody and everybody at all times. You have no control about which commercial pops up while you're watching a show, which ad pops up on the side, which sign you drive past. And your mind is constantly being infiltrated. And we like to think in the West, don't we, that we have sort of this ability to think for ourselves. We have this ability to kind of self-think, um, to, to operate off of our sort of core values and, and make decisions critically for ourselves. But that's really not true. We're, we're all a product of the influence that we've been given. We're a pl- product of what has influenced our minds. And much of what we think as Americans, as Westerners, um, it's just simply what we've been taught. I mean, we were raised by Disney, weren't we? <laughs> so, so much of our theology is not in the Bible, it's Disney. It's Disney theology. You know, we were, we were raised by Hollywood in many ways, many of us. The way we think about the family, the way that we think about marriage or sex or relationships or anything, it was, it was shaped mostly in Hollywood. It was shaped by people that shape culture. We do not think for ourselves. It's simply not true. Your mind and your thoughts and uh, everything that goes on up here is really a vacuum. It's a vacuum waiting to be filled, and it will be filled. This idea of neutrality and thinking, it's really not true. It's, it's just not true. Uh, subliminally, we're being brainwashed um, in our brain is high real estate. So if we can agree that there's no avoiding this brainwash, this vacuum that is going to be filled, um, then it kind of leads to the next question is, is who is filling our minds and why are they filling it? The reason people fill our minds is to uh, basically to, to control our minds to, to be suited to their will. Okay, what I mean by that, so uh, let's take Disney since we're picking on Disney. Nothing wrong with watching Disney, by the way. Um, But Disney has an agenda. Did you know that? They have a worldview agenda. And that agenda is their will. It's their will. They will to see the world a certain way and for us to all see the world the way that those people see the world. And so when they create material, when they create movies, when they create shows, those shows are the expression of that will. And it's uh, the, the purpose is to shape your mind into the expression of their will. There are, um, every theology, philosophy, religion, it's it's all an expression of somebody's will, and that will is is shaping you in your mind. So who's shaping your mind? What's shaping your mind? Ephesians 2 talks about, it talks about the real work of God and the believer, okay? And it says this, it says you, this is speaking of us before we were Christians, okay? Assuming you're a believer in this room. The way it describes us before we're Christians, Paul says, you who were dead in our trespasses and sins. A dead person doesn't do much thinking of their own, do they? They don't do much thinking of their own. In in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Course of this world means you're, you're like someone on a little raft floating down a raging river. You don't have much say, much control about going the other way or left or right. The river is carrying you. Paul's getting at the point that the, the, the world is like a river and it is carrying you down its course, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, that's the enemy, the one who ultimately has been given temporary stewardship uh, and sovereignty within limits over this world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, meaning that everything we were doing before Christ was simply carried out by the passions of our flesh. Even the good things that we did were oftentimes for our flesh. It was so that we could gratify ourselves. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind were by nature children of wrath, meaning that we were by nature enemies of God like the rest of mankind. This is the picture that Paul paints of the pre-saved believer. Your mind is a vacuum and it's being filled, and it's ultimately being filled by the prince of the power of the air, whose ultimate job is to get you out of the will of God and into his will, out of the rule of God and into his rule, because he hates God. He wants to replace God in your heart. So that's kind of the picture. But salvation and sanctification, which is the growing of the believer, what that looks like is God taking the vacuum of your mind that has been filled by the prince of the power of the air and taking it and and claiming it for himself and then slowly transforming that mind to be in conformity with his mind, with his will, for his agenda. That is the Christian maturation process. That when we get saved, we now are filling our mind with his thoughts, or should be. And as we grow, our thoughts begin to resemble more his thoughts. We start to think like him, act like him, be like him. That is what it looks like to mature in Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book that we're going to look at here, Colossians, the Apostle Paul, um, he thought that he was thinking for himself before he got saved. Do you remember when he was Saul? He thought that he had things right. He thought that he was in uh, what was the truth of God, but in fact, his mind had actually been filled by an alternative will. And that will led him to a point where he was literally killing Christians. He was a terrorist of the church. He thought he was doing God's will. And in doing so, he literally was on his way to Damascus um, to seize as many Christians as he could to arrest them, thinking that he was doing the will of God. In fact, he wasn't. And what happens? Jesus himself stops Paul on the road to Damascus. Was it Damascus? Yeah. The road to Damascus. He stops Paul and he says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. And that expression is is the picture of, of a mule that has nails behind its feet so that it doesn't kick backwards. If it kicks backwards, it's going to get stabbed. He's saying that, Paul, you are running against the grain of my will. You're you're going against my will, and it's hard for you, isn't it, Paul? Everything that the non-believer does is kicking the goats. Everything we do when we're outside of the will of God is kicking against the goats. It's, it's, It's not the way things were created to go. It's petting the cat backwards. Okay? It's it's God's God's will is ultimate reality. And when we're in God's will, we're in ultimate reality. Anything outside of God's will is ultimately a lie. And Satan's ultimate objective is to get you to go against God's will. Do you understand that? So Paul has this moment where God literally brings him to his knees. Jesus appears before him, the resurrected Jesus before Paul, brings him to his knees, and he has what we call this crisis moment (laughs) where he, he, he has to come to the end of himself. And Jesus says, okay, Paul, you once were, uh, you know, as Ephesians 2 says, you once were an enemy of mine. Remember he says, why are you attacking me? Why are you killing me? He says, now you're going to be my vessel, Paul. Now you're going to be my vessel. And you have no idea how much you're going to suffer for me, for my sake. (laughs) And at that moment, Saul became Paul, and Paul became a vessel of Christ for the will of Christ. He became uh, an avenue for the will of God to be accomplished and expressed. And Paul had that very 
clear understanding. Now, even though Paul's life at that very moment got very hard, he went from being a very studious, astute, respected, bright and shining, up-and-coming star in the world of Phariseeism to being a hated, loathed, spat-on, beat-up, arrested, misfit apostle. Now he's one of the most famous people in human history, but then nobody liked him. He went from being a really somebody to really nobody. But Paul didn't care. He didn't care because he was in the will of God. And because he was in the will of God, it didn't matter what happened to him because he was now in conformity with God's ultimate mind. So when Paul communicates ideas in his letters, he's very, very clear on this idea of being in the will of God. He wants them to understand that. In the book of Colossians, and particularly in the text that we're going to look at today, this is what Paul's getting at. He's getting at the importance of being in the will of God, and that's what we're going to talk about. Paul's writing to a young church called Colossae, uh, a young church whose mind is under attack. Remember I told you your mind is under attack? This church's mind was under attack. They were being infiltrated by outside people that were coming in and trying to, to add, make them add to the gospel. And so Paul really is writing a pastoral letter. You know, Paul was an apostle. He was an evangelist. He was also a pastor. And he writes a pastoral letter of concern to, to try to steer these Colossian believers in the right direction to make sure that they're filling their mind with the truth and that their mind isn't being filled for them. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to dive in again, like I said, for the next seven weeks, we're going to take a look at, at Colossians. We're going to have to move a little faster than I would like to, to fit it into seven weeks, but I want you guys to get the flow of the book, and so I'm okay with that. If we stop on every verse, we'll miss the flow of the book. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of background about the book of Colossians before we, we dive in, okay? So a little bit of background on Colossians. First of all, the author and the date. The author, obviously, is the Apostle Paul. We've already said that. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Colossians is one of them. Four of those letters that he wrote uh, were what are called the prison epistles. Philippians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Colossians. Prison epistles. They're called that because Paul most likely wrote them while he was in custody or in house arrest in Rome. Those of you that were with us when we studied the book of Acts, uh, Paul ended his... Uh, ended the book of Acts being in house arrest in Rome. And from that place in house arrest, he sat down and he penned some of the most amazing, theologically robust letters ever. I'm thankful for his imprisonment. I'm thankful because now we get to see the theology um, that Paul preached of the gospel. So he wrote Colossians probably around 55 to 60 AD, so something about 25 to 30 years after Christ's uh, resurrection ascension. So he's an older man at this point. Paul usually had his letters transcribed. He didn't sit down and write them himself. He had somebody transcribe them for him, and we know that because at the very end, he says that he takes the pen and writes it with his own hand, the last sentence, the last greeting. A lot of people think Paul had some issues with his eyesight. That's why he wasn't able to, to write. Now, this particular letter, it's always grouped in commentaries. If you ever read a commentary, it's always grouped with the book of Philemon, which is this, this tiny little book in the New Testament. It's a letter. It's grouped with Philemon because Paul actually sent the letter of Colossae, the Colossians, he sent it with Onesimus, um, also carrying the book of Philemon. He, kept, he, he sent him with Colossians and Philemon at the same time. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons for that we won't get into, but, but there's a connection between those two books that's, that's pretty interesting. Let's talk about Colossae. Colossae was a, a pretty underwhelming place at the time that Paul was writing. It used to be an amazing city. It's actually located in eastern uh, Asia Minor, so uh, think Turkey, okay, the eastern part of modern-day Turkey, uh, but 100 miles east of Ephesus. 
Now, Ephesus would be like Portland, and Colossae would probably be like Grants Pass, okay, in terms of distance, in terms of um, what was influential. Ephesus was really the center, the urban center of the Asian minor world. Uh, that's why Paul did the majority of his ministry actually in Ephesus, because people would come to him. He actually opened a college there for two years and taught the Bible for two years in Ephesus. And so, um, so Ephesus was the big urban center, but over to the right, over to the east, we had Colossae. Just above that, you have Laodicea, which you're probably familiar with from the book of Revelation. The Colossae was a smaller town. It was always kind of overshadowed by Laodicea and Hermopolis. And this church, interestingly, was not planted by the Apostle Paul. Did you know that? Paul didn't plant this church, and he makes that very clear, as we'll see in, the, in this passage. It was actually planted by a man named Epaphras, or Epaphras. Epaphras seemed probably to be a student of the Apostle Paul's when Paul set up, as I said, his college in Ephesus and was teaching. It seems that uh, Epaphras was probably traveling to Ephesus in order to learn from the Apostle Paul and then probably brought the gospel back to this town of Colossae, began ministering the gospel, and a church was planted. We don't actually know if Paul even ever actually visited Colossae. He might have. We, we don't know. But he takes it unto himself to sort of care for, uh, as an apostle, for the spiritual um, needs of this church. He cared about them. He was aware of them. And it seems like Epaphras had come to Rome, where Paul was, and brought this report of the church at Colossae, this baby church. Perfect. We're a baby church. Colossae was a baby church. Perfect connection, right? So Epaphras brings this report to, to, to Rome, to Paul, and he says, hey, this church that we've just planted, it's growing, it's thriving, there's health, there's life, they love the saints, they're um, filled with faith and hope, but there is people, there are people coming from the outside, and they're trying to pull the Colossian believers away from the simplicity and the depth of the gospel and, and tell them that they have to do more. And there's a lot of argument, actually, within scholarship about what it was and who it was that was coming into the Colossian church in, in telling them that they needed to do more. Uh, there's, there's volumes and volumes of commentaries written on it. And at the end of the day, we don't know exactly what this false religion was that was infiltrating the Colossian church, but we do know what some of the shape of it was. Okay, we know what some of the shape of it was. We know that by deconstructing Paul's argument in the book of Colossians. So if you look at what he argues and you take it apart, you go, okay, so based on what Paul's telling them to watch for, we can figure out kind of what they were being told. Uh, specifically, I'll just, give you, I'll just give you five things, just briefly, by way of introduction. Five things that the Colossian church was being attacked by. And it's important that you know this because it's going to help us um, interpret this book accurately. First of all, they were being in infiltrated by traditionalism. Traditionalism is giving more weight to past tradition than to scripture. So someone was coming in and saying, yeah, that's great that you guys have the gospel, and that's great that you're filled with the Spirit, but don't forget you have to do what all those people did that one time. Man, nothing kills a church faster. There's nothing wrong with traditions. Nothing kills a church faster than when the Spirit of God is doing life, and then someone comes in and says, yeah, but you have to do it the way they did it, or it's not valid. The second thing is legalism. One of the most common themes that Paul writes against. Legalism says justification is by grace plus the stuff that you do. That's legalism, okay? Grace plus something else. So people were coming in and telling them, oh, yeah, that's great that you're saved by grace, but don't forget to do your works too. The third thing was asceticism, and he uses that word, at least in the ESV translation. He says specifically they're being attacked by asceticism. Asceticism is self-deprecation or severe self-discipline. 
It's the idea of if, if, if I sort of beat my body and starve my body into submission, I'll somehow be more holy. Any of you that have ever tried that know that that's not necessarily true. Then he says uh, to watch out for mysticism and spiritualism. Now, up until this point, it seems like a slam dunk that the Judaizers were the ones coming into Colossians. You know what a Judaizer? It was the people that came into these Greek churches and said, it's great that you guys believe in Jesus, but don't forget, you got to get circumcised. Don't forget, you got to blah, 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 blah. But then Paul also mentions all of this mysticism and spiritualism, which sounds a lot like Greek pagan religion. So it seems like there was a, uh, someone coming in that was also influencing them with this. So mysticism and spiritualism is obsession with the spiritual realm rather than God's spiritual life and rule. And this is something that so many churches are guilty of. They become obsessed with the idea of spiritual things. Okay? Not the fruit of the Spirit of God, but the spiritual, the sensual, the feeling-driven ministries. And then lastly, sensualism, which is very similar. Sensualism is a carnal overemphasis on feelings with the absence of truth, okay? And this was, this was absolutely common in all of the Greco-Roman cults of the day. Okay, so the Christians, they were, they were saved in a, in a hard time, you know that? They were saved in a, in a time where Greco-Roman paganism was everywhere. And Greco-Roman paganism was, was stitched into the fiber of their culture. And so Paul has to shepherd these guys to watch out for the remnants and the carryover of all of this paganism. And so that's what he's doing in the book of Colossians. So the summary of this book really would be that Paul is combating the infiltration of these false gospels by driving them back to the true gospel of who Christ is and what he's done. So that's just a quick introduction uh, to the book. Let's get into it. Verse 1. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul starts by um, mentioning his credentials. This is not a church that he planted. It's a church that he is stepping in to, to, to sort of care for. Um, he was certainly the pastor of Epaphras. And so Epaphras seemingly was the person that had been leading or had started the church. So he starts by identifying his credential as an apostle. Now, apostle means sent one, but it also has an office, an office that no longer exists, by the way. And if anyone tells you they're an apostle, tell them to go jump off a bridge, okay? Um, that's not an office that still exists. There's credentials to be an apostle that you had to see the risen Lord. You had to be called by the risen Lord and had walked by him. Paul was an apostle. He saw the risen Lord. And, and that, that office was something that carried a, a measure of weight uh, with him. So he's, he's, he's letting them know his credentials. But there's a certain word I want you to see here that we already brought up. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the what? The will of God. He's saying, hey, I was kicking against the goats. And then Christ came in, and now I'm in his will. Now I'm in his will. And his will is that I would be the apostle to the Gentiles. That Paul would be sort of the tip of the spear that would plunge into the Gentile universe with the gospel. And that's what he did. He mentions his brother Timothy. Who's not really his brother, but he's his brother in Christ. And Timothy was really Paul's, one of Paul's favorite companions. He was kind of like his primary disciple uh, that he had with him. Uh, Philippians 2, 19 gives us a picture of how special Timothy was to Paul. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. 
or they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you, Timothy, know, or you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me and with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. That's writing to the Philippian church. So you see there the uh, importance that he puts on Timothy. Timothy was very special, and he mentions Timothy in this particular letter to the Colossians. A quick point here, by the way, Paul never did ministry by himself. I think there was like one time maybe where he was in the, the uh, Agora or something like that, but for the most part, as, as far as we can see, Paul always had a group of people. Take a, take a right really quick just to the end of the book of Colossians. I just want you to see this. In chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. This is the end of the book of Colossians, and he starts listing off all the people that are just chilling with him while he's on house arrest in Rome. He says, Tychicus will tell you all of my activities. He is a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, that is John Mark, the one that wrote the gospel of Mark. Uh, the cousin of Barnabas. Uh, he goes on. Justice, uh, not Jesus, who is called Justice. Uh, Epaphras. I mean, you, the, the point here is he just lists off. Like It's like Paul was just with a group of people all the time. He didn't do ministry by himself. I don't know how we get it, but in the West we have this idea of ministry being like the Obi-Wan Kenobi ministry where you're like alone in the desert and you have all spiritual gifts, including a lightsaber, and everywhere you go, you're just ministering and you just know what to do in every situation. You're perfectly kind and merciful and prophetic and blah, blah, blah. That's actually not how they did ministry in the early church. They did it in a group. It was always in a group. That's why group is so important. That's why being in community is so important. Doing ministry together is so important. So he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace from God our Father. So that's his greeting. That's a fairly typical greeting of Paul. And then in verse 3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So Paul now offers up a thanksgiving, um, not to the Colossians for being faithful and loving the saints. He offers up the thanks to God because God's the one that's producing the spiritual fruit in the Colossians. Now, I just want to note really quick, too, that Paul's prayer, which this is all part of Paul's prayer, he says, whenever we pray for you, we thank God. I, I think sometimes the reason our prayer isn't more richer, more richer, our prayer life isn't more rich, is because it lacks praise. Paul's prayer life was saturated with praise. He not only prayed for them, he also praised God for them. I would challenge you guys, you know, a lot of my own prayers that come out of my own mouth, they're just all like whiny. You know, there's nothing wrong with putting petition before the Lord, but sometimes when I start out in prayer by thanking the Lord, for all that he has done and been, that's how Jesus taught the, the disciples to pray, remember? He said, when you pray, pray like this. He starts out by praising and acknowledging the holiness of the Father. So I would, I would encourage you, in your prayers, how much of your prayers are praise? I think it enriches your, your prayer life. But what is Paul thanking God for? Look at verse 4. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus uh, and of the love that you have for all the saints. So Paul is thankful for the report that he has gotten of the Colossian church. And the report is not only that they have faith in Christ Jesus, which, by the way, is the most supernatural thing that ever happens in the world, is that any of us have faith in Christ Jesus. But not only do they have faith in Christ Jesus, but also that they have love for the saints. He puts the two in the same breath. They are fraternally joined. Love for the saints and faith in Christ cannot be separated. 
Love for the saints and faith in Christ cannot be separated. And Paul is thankful not only that they believe in Jesus, not only that they have profession in Christ, but that they have love for the saints because the love for the saints is how we see that we have faith in Christ. I can't overemphasize that enough. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Remember, he just got done washing their feet. And he says, do this. He's like, do this to each other. This is, he's giving them an example. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, what is this? The way you love one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's a connection. There's a connection in your faith to the way that you love. Uh, another one, 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Okay? Pretty simple. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So, so my prayer for our church is that two things would run in parallel. That our faith would be increased and simultaneously so would our love for each other. And as our love for each other is increased, so would simultaneously our faith. The two need to come together. They come in parallel. They're both equally important. You know, it's interesting, just as a, an example, in the book Revelation, when, uh, when Christ himself is writing a circulatory letter to the seven churches, do you remember what his indictment was against, I think it was Ephesus? He says, you've forgotten your first love. And that, that is always translated and always taught to be our first love, meaning Jesus. But a lot of commentators actually think he's talking about their love for the church. He's talking about loving each other. He's saying, you forgot to love each other. You've lost that, and because you've lost that, your witness has gone out. Your light's going out. This is extremely important. It's so crucial. Our witness is tied to it. What people that are lost in the world need to see is they need to see a kingdom community that's unreal. That's what they saw in the book of Acts, people loving each other so radically that the gospel began to just pour out of it. It was, it was crazy. Verse 5. Now, what, what has created this faith and love in the Colossians? Paul goes on. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven... Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So it's interesting here. Paul connects their faith in Christ and their love for the saints. He connects it to this one thing. It is what? Hope. He says your hope is what this is coming out of. Um, and by the way, this is a great definition of the gospel. If you ever want to spend a little bit more time looking this up, verse 5 is a phenomenal definition of the gospel. The gospel just means it's euangelion. It means good news. But he calls the gospel the word of the truth. Perfect definition of the gospel. It is the proclamation of the reality of what Christ has done. It's the speaking forth of what Jesus has and is accomplishing on the cross. Okay? That's what the gospel is. And he's saying that the reason you have faith and the reason you have uh, love is because you're connected and rooted to this hope. I like the way Jordan Peterson um, I like the way Jordan Peterson paraphrases that particular verse in the message. He says, The lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack tightly tied as they are to your future in heaven, kept taught by hope. What produces faith and love in the believer is this connection that we have to our hope that is in heaven. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 just disappeared. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, I want you to picture that because the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to get you to picture that, that you have an anchor that is connected and that's connected to your soul and that anchor is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain that's in the temple where the presence of God dwells, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the, the thing that spurs believers on to, to faith and to love for the saints is the anchor that we have to the, the, the work that has been accomplished that is connected in, in heaven for us. It's Christ. He is that anchor. Now, don't limit the word heaven in the text. Don't limit the word heaven to just a future thing. Okay, I'll put it this way. It's not merely a hope in future bliss that drives us to faith and love. There, there's a, a version of the gospel out there. I'm not saying it's a false gospel. I'm just saying it's an anorexic gospel that goes like this. Hey, if you want to live for Jesus, then you just need to really get excited about what the future is going to be like in heaven. I don't know about you. That doesn't make me do much other than just kind of sit tight and wait. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that, that there is riches now in heaven for you. That the, the realization and the belief and the, real, the, the understanding of those riches is what drives us in the moment to faith and love. It's not just like, yeah, someday things will be great. It's like, no, I have all riches in Christ in heaven sealed right now. And it's that belief and that realization that brings us into a place of faith and love. It's like the difference between someone saying, hey, someday I'm going to die, I'm going to give you my Maserati. You're like, oh, cool, right on. Versus someone who'd be like, hey, I just deposited $5 billion into your account. Now, it's in a trust, but it's yours, okay? And you can get deposits of it. It'll all be yours at one point, but it's in a trust. It's already in your bank account. The fullness of the riches of Christ are already yours in heaven. Now, we have not yet fully realized that, but they're yours. And Christ is those riches. Are you following? And that's the anchor for the soul. That's what produces faith and love in us. Verse 6. Speaking of the gospel, he says, Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard. Back in uh, Colossians, by the way. Uh, verse 6. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, this is where we uh, learned that Epaphras actually planted this church. Our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. In other words, he's saying this gospel reality, which is the hope of Christ in heaven, this gospel reality is like a seed, and that seed has been planted in the midst of you, and it's brought forth life. That's what the gospel does. Did you see me catch that? That was pretty impressive, right? Okay. It's a new Bible. I don't usually use this. It's not balanced right. Um, I'm just going to set it right there. It, the, the gospel is a seed, and that seed brings forth life. And Paul is saying, hey, the gospel was planted by Epaphras, and just like it's bringing forth life in Colossae, it's bringing forth life in the whole world. Remember when we looked at the book of Acts? I mean, it's just this explosion of gospel life all throughout the Jewish and Gentile world. It's phenomenal. And Paul's saying, you're part of that. One of my favorite uh, quotes from Rick Boya, uh, he says, you don't plant a church, you plant the gospel, and the church grows around it. And that's super important. The, the, the life of this church, the life of any church, is the gospel. And we continue to plant that gospel, and the spirit continues to water, and it continues to bring forth life and reproduce. That's what a church is. It's what Jesus was talking about in John 15. When he says, I'm the vine, I'm the source of the life, you're just the branch. And as long as you're connected to me, as long as you're connected to me, the life will pass through you and produce more life. And that's what Paul's saying is happening here in Colossians. It's the same thing Jesus said when he said that the, 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 the kingdom is like a mustard seed. 
It's the the planting of the gospel. He's like this little tiny seed, but then it grows up into this massive shrub. The same with the leaven. It's just this little tiny product, but then it turns into something bigger. He's saying the gospel is explosive power in a seed, and once it's planted, it just brings forth explosive life. And so what we do here to grow is we just keep planting it. We just keep planting. We plant it in the lost. We plant it in our own minds, and we fill our own minds with the gospel truth because that's where the power is. I'm getting a little excited. Take a breath. So he's thanking God for, just to to get the passage here, he's thanking God for the gospel life that has been taking place in Colossae. He said, thank you, Lord. Every time I pray for you guys, I thank God that you are growing because of your understanding of the gospel, which is the work and life of Jesus Christ. Now, you would think at this point, you would think at this point, uh, now that he's, he's said that they're doing great, he has nothing to complain about, nothing to correct them in, you would think at this point he would uh, move on to something else. But instead, he says, hey, you guys are really healthy. You guys are doing really great. And for that reason, I do not cease to pray for you. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 9. So from the day we heard, from the day that Epaphras brought us this good report, we have not ceased to pray for you. That just seems weird to me. Like, why would you pray for them all the time? Paul, they're doing great. We just pray for people that are hurting, right? We just pray for people that are struggling, right? Like, we don't pray for people when they're doing good. Eh. Paul sees that this gospel life is budding and growing and exploding in this church of Colossae, so he prays for them without ceasing. Why? Because the enemy's primary target, listen to this, the enemy's primary target is new and unrooted gospel life. Do you remember the parable Jesus gave of the four seeds? The issue wasn't with the seed. The issue was with the soil, and when it would fall on shallow soil, or it would fall somewhere where the sun could scorch it or where the weeds could, could choke it out, or the birds of the air could snatch it. Gospel life is powerful, and Paul realizes how fragile that gospel life is. And so he's praying without ceasing that this new explosive gospel life that's been planted in Colossae would not be choked out. That's a shepherd's job. You know, Satan's not stupid. He's a predatory animal. You know what predatory animals do? They don't eat the full-grown buffalo. What do they do? They eat the babies. <laughs> they eat the, the, the peaked ones, the ones that haven't eaten in, in forever, the ones that are laying there, you know, just, just sick. That's where they go after, okay? And so, so he recognizes that, and he says, you guys are baby Christians, and for that reason, I'm going to pray for you. And guys, we need to recognize that. When people are new, and the gospel life is new, and we need to throw arms around them, and to grow them, and to disciple them. Build up the church, regardless of their current health. Now, what is Paul praying continually for them? This is where we're going to kind of focus a little bit more for the rest of our, our time here. He says in verse 9, So from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we're going to spend some time unpacking that verse because I think it's, it's, it's dynamite. But I want you to notice here that rather than Paul praying For a widening of knowledge, he prays for a deepening of knowledge in something specific. You would think, he says, okay, you guys got the gospel, good job, let's move on to some more important things. Let's widen out your knowledge base. Let's start talking about, let's start arguing about eschatology. I mean, that's, you know, like, let's, let's figure out the genealogies. Like, let's, let's get in on, there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not what Paul does. He says, hey, guys, the gospel's what brought life, now go deeper into it. He says, my prayer is that you would have a deeper spiritual understanding in the will of God, that you would go deeper into it, not wider in knowledge. 
Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Now let me try to explain something here. Verse 10 and 11 is the result of what he's praying for in verse 9. Verse 10 and 11 is the fruit of what happens if verse 9 happens in your life. So verse 9 is really the the nucleus of his prayer. His prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Remember we talked about in the beginning? The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's his prayer. And then verses 10 and 11 is what happens if that's a reality. Verse 10, so as to blah, blah, blah. Okay? Now, he lists off eight results of what happens if you are actually fully filled with the will of God. And let's just go through them really quick. He lists eight things. In verse 10, he says, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. He's saying, so if you're in the will of God fully, you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That just means um, that your life will reflect the reality of what God has done in you. Number two, he says, walking fully pleasing in him. That means that your actions and your decisions and motives will bring him joy, not grief. I don't know about you, that sounds great. To not grieve the Holy Spirit, to not grieve the Lord with my sin and my struggle. He says, if this is true, you will walk in a way that pleases the Lord. Now, we please the Lord because of Christ's imputed righteousness. But, but to not have anything in my life any longer that causes the Lord grief would be amazing, Right? He says, bearing fruit in every good work. That means that you become like a life-giving tree. In the Middle East, fruit trees are a pretty big deal. They're life source. He says, you'll increase in the knowledge of God. That means that daily you'll be obtaining a deeper, fuller, richer understanding of who God is, what he's done. He's saying you'll be strengthened with power according to his glorious might. That's walking in the power of the Spirit. He says, you will have all endurance that's, I love, it's one of my favorite words in the New Testament. It's hupomene is the Greek word. It's to bear up under whatever circumstance God has providentially put under you. He's saying you'll have endurance. He's saying you'll have patience, which is forbearance, calm, a calm disposition. And then lastly, you'll be joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now, those are great things. Those are things that all of us as Christians should long for in our life. Those are fruit. But Paul is not just necessarily praying that they would have those things. He's praying that they would have one thing, and that is a fullness of the knowledge of his will. And as a result, all of those things would come. And really, all those things, all those eight things I just listed, are a picture of Christ's perfect life. Did you know that what Jesus is trying to do in you, in your maturing process, is to make you look like him? He's taking all of the fullness and richness of his perfect human life and he's growing you to look like him. That's what he's doing. There's a a term that Scott McKnight uses. uh, I really like it. I'd like to to use it here. It's Christoformity. He steals it from the word cruciform. You ever heard that? Cruciform is something that takes the shape of a cross or takes the shape of the cross. He's saying so much of the New Testament is about us walking in Christoformity, which is being formed into the image of Christ. That's what God's doing in you. He's much more concerned about shaping you into the image of Christ than he is how amazing your life's going to be or what things you're going to do. His primary focus is Christoformity, turning you into the shape of Christ. Notice what Paul's not praying for here. And I'm not saying, by the way, we shouldn't pray for these things. I'm just saying that these things need to take a second seat. He's not praying for health, wealth, prosperity, or well-being. He's not praying for that. 
Not that Paul doesn't care about that. Not that he doesn't probably pray for some of those things. He's not praying for an easy, carefree life. He's praying for Christoformity. He's praying that Jesus would be formed and the life of Jesus and the character of Jesus would be formed and would, become, would begin seeping out of these believers. That the deep work would happen in their soul. And how that's accomplished is when we are fully understanding and controlled by his will. So how do we get this? I want to spend the rest of our time on verse 9, and then we'll end, okay? Verse 9, I think, is absolutely pregnant with truth, okay? So look at it one more time. Verse 9, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is Paul's, this is the nucleus of Paul's prayer. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we need to ask some questions of that verse. When you're reading an epistle like this, you've got to wrestle with some of the words. It's not like reading narrative where you can just read chunks and get what's going on. Every word in this is packed with truth. And Paul is getting at a deep truth here, and we need to unpack it a little bit. So first of all, we need, to, we need to say what he doesn't mean here. When he's praying for them to have um, a knowledge of, to be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom understanding, what does he not mean? Let's, just, let's eliminate what he doesn't mean. Four things. First of all, he doesn't mean that we as Christians would find the yellow brick road of his will. You know what I mean by that? A lot of Christians think about God's will this way. God has this yellow brick road that's going to lead me where I'm supposed to go, and my job is just to stay on it. And if I get off of it, oh man, the Lord's not blessing me because I'm not in his will anymore. And if I'm in his will, then the Lord will bless me. And so we've, we just, we're scared all the time of being out of the Lord's will. Like it's some kind of red line that we have to go find and chase down. I have seen that theology destroy Christians. It's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying, I want you to be filled with knowledge so that you can stay on the yellow brick road and end up getting to the Jade Palace or whatever it's called. What's, the, the, what's it called? Whatever, that thing. Everyone's saying the same. Emerald City, whatever. Okay. That's, that's not, it's not some cosmic path that it's up for you to get your machete out, hack the weeds out, and find it. What's the Lord's will? What's the Lord's will? What's the Lord's will? You're going to turn into schizophrenic. That's not what he's saying. Secondly, he's not saying, when he says spiritual wisdom and understanding, he's not talking about some mystical, sensually discerned um, knowledge that can only be understood by emptying your mind. That's Eastern religion. Okay, He's not saying, I want you to be filled with God's knowledge, which means you have to empty your mind. That's, that's absolutely the opposite of what he's saying. It's what the Gnostics were saying in the first century in their heresies, secret knowledge. He's not saying anything about mental assent. Okay, now, A lot of um, my Reformed brothers um, take this verse and they say, see, that's why Christians should be absolutely obsessed with knowledge. It's not what he's saying either. See, that's why we should be, if that was true, then every single one of us should be in seminary right now. If, if, if God's will is that we would be filled with knowledge, then we would all be in seminary learning um, scripture. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and knowledge is important, and knowledge is helpful, but he's not talking about in, intellectualism. There are thousands of what are called higher critics out there that write books about the Bible. They spend 30 hours, 40, 50, 60 hours a week studying the Bible, and they're all going to hell. Did you know that? They're called higher critics. They literally, they, they spend their time trying to disassemble the Bible, and they fail. So, so understanding knowledge about the scriptures clearly is not what he's talking about. He's also not talking about some kind of a hollow profession of faith. I mean, there, there, are, there are millions of Christians that profess knowledge in Christ, but yet bear none of the fruit that we see in the following verses. 
So what's he talking about here? What does it mean to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? I want us to understand that verse because it's so important that Paul's praying it for them. He wants this for them. And I want this for you and I want this for me. I want us to be believers in a church that are filled with the knowledge of his will. What does that mean? Well, let's break it down. First of all, what does knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding mean? We'll get to the filled part in a minute. Let's start with knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, uh, some of the Greek words here. Knowledge is the Greek word epigenosis. Epigenosis. Gnosis means knowledge. And epi is the preposition before it that intensifies the meaning. And what that means is that when Paul's talking about knowledge here, he's not talking about an empty-mindedness. He's talking about a precise, deep, thorough knowledge and understanding. Okay? And that's why the, the, the truth of the gospel matters. It matters that we understand it. It's not an empty-minded thing here. And again, remember, Paul is combating pagan religion, which tells you, turn your brain off. Turn on your senses. Turn your brain off. Turn on your feelings. That's what the pagans did. What do you feel? What do you feel? It's all about how you feel. And Paul's saying, no, it's not about how you feel. It's about what you understand, partially. The second word, understanding, is the Greek word synesis, which is to comprehend. That has to do with understanding, compre- comprehending the knowledge. Wisdom is sophias, which is the application of the knowledge, the carrying out of that knowledge. But notice that he says um, he wants them to have the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He puts that word spiritual before wisdom and understanding. Why does he do that? Well, some people take the word spiritual and they interpret it to mean mm, floating, okay, immaterial, nothing. Spiritual, uh, a lot of people in our culture say they're spiritual, and what they mean is that they're really tuned into the things we can't see. That's not what Paul means when he says spiritual. When he says spiritual, he, he, he means originating from the Spirit, okay? That's what spiritual means, under the control of the Spirit. He's saying that the knowledge I'm praying for you to have, the wisdom I'm praying for you to have, the understanding that I'm praying for you to have of God's will is spiritual because the Spirit has brought it forth. The Spirit is responsible for it, okay? It's very important that we understand it. And the most important word in the sentence is will. That's what we're trying to figure out. What is the will of God for me? He's praying that they would understand it. It's so important that he wants them not only to understand it, but to have wisdom, spiritual wisdom and understanding of it. So what does he mean by will? The Greek word is thelema, and it is the desire or purpose or intention. So God has a will. I don't mean he wrote some stuff on a paper that he's going to give you when he dies. Uh, his will is the express expression of his, of his mind, his desires, his intent. It's what he's doing. God's will is what he's doing. And not just in your life, but what he's doing cosmically. He has a will. He's doing something. And Paul's prayer is that we would have a, understand, a spiritual understanding and knowledge and wisdom about this will, about what it is that he wants, what it is that he is doing. Will does not mean that you have to guess what God wants for your life so that he'll bless you. See, a lot of people get that wrong. They, they think, God has a will for me, and if I get it wrong, I'm not going to get blessed by him. Here's the problem with that. The problem is, is that you're trying to discern God's will not because you want to tune into his thing, and because you want to, uh, you know, you want to merge into His highway. You want God's will because you want God to do good things for you, because you're ultimately loving yourself in that. 
See, a lot of times we wrestle with God's will not because we care about what he's doing and how we want to be part of it. We care about God's will because we want him to give us what we want. I see this all the time in marriage. Lord, who do you have for me? Who do you have for me? And it's like, I want to get your will right, but I really want to get your will right because I don't want to marry the wrong person and then you're not going to bless me and I'm not going to be happy. And Lord, I really want to get your will right in this job because if I'm out of your will, you might not bless me and I might not. That's paganism. That's legalism. Like God's only going to bless you in a job if you're in his will? That's not what he's talking about here. His will means everything that God is doing cosmically and redemptively in the universe. God's will is what? That he would bring shalom to the whole world through the person of Jesus Christ. That God would be glorified above all in Jesus Christ. And you, being in his will, means that you say yes to that. That you're saying, I exist for your glory. Not, where's my wife's name in my Fruit Loops? That's not the will he's talking about. He's saying, he's praying for the Colossians that they would merge into God's cosmic redemptive plan for the world. That's way more exciting than what job am I supposed to take? I'm not telling you you shouldn't pray about those things, by the way. But I'm telling you that God's will is far bigger than whether or not you, you, know, you should move or stay or whatever. That, that, that's not what Paul's praying for here. He's praying that the Colossians would be consumed or filled with God's plan. Listen to what N.T. Wright says in his commentary on Colossians. says, The knowledge of God's will is more than simply an insight into how God wants his people to behave. It is an understanding of God's whole saving purpose in Christ, and hence the knowledge of God himself. This is the will that he wants us to tune into. I truly believe, and I can't say this with certainty, I truly believe if we could funnel even a fraction of our Western Christian evangelical obsession with getting God's will right and funnel that into Christians that were doing what God already said his will was, we'd see revival. I mean, I hear it all the time. Christians are freaking out. God, what's your will? What's your will? What's your will? I'm like, it says it right here. If we could just funnel that energy into doing what we already know he says and cares about and loves, I really think we'd see revival. I really do. We need to take God at his word. Quit worrying so much about the unrevealed will of God and spend time studying the revealed will of God. And there's a lot of it here. The original sin of the garden was Adam and Eve not taking God at his word. See, Satan came in and lied and said, you know, there's some kind of superior knowledge out here. There's some kind of secret wisdom. And God's not sharing it with you. I, God already said, he already told you not to eat the bush. Why, why did I say bush? Tree? Fruit? I don't know. Bush? He, he's like, I know God already told you that, but don't take him at his word. He's holding back from you. I think Satan loves it when we spin out and self-condemnation and fear that God's not going to bless us because we might be out of his will instead of looking at what he's already expressed his will to be in the word and getting on board with that. It's clear as day. He wrote it down in his book. Now, I want to talk about this word filled because I think it's crucial. So, so we understand what his will is. His, his, his intent would be that we would be filled with that will. What does filled mean? Now, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say, I want you to know his will. You notice that? He doesn't say, I want you to know his will. He says, I want you to be filled with his will. And they're very different things. The Greek word filled is pleroo, and it is to be complete, fully filled, totally controlled. If Paul just wanted them to understand something, 
He would say, I'm praying that you would know God's will. That's not what he's praying. He's saying, I want, I'm praying that you would be filled with God's will. If you imagine a, vas, a vessel or a cup, it's filled with something. That means there's no room for anything else. It's consumed by that substance. That's the picture that he's getting at. I want you to be consumed, controlled, entirely oriented by the will of God, which is God's cosmic redemptive plan for the universe. I want you to be tuned into that fully. I want, to be, I want that to be the main purpose of everything that you do. The same word filled is used in a, a few different places, not up there, a few different places. John 16, 6, the disciples' hearts were filled with sorrow when Jesus um, told them he was departing. Uh, how about Luke 5, 26, the crowd was filled with fear after Jesus healed the paralytic. Luke 6, 11, the scribes and Pharisees were filled with rage after Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Acts 4, 31, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, deep connection there, Stephen in Acts 6-5 was full of faith. The point that Paul's getting at here is that they would be fully controlled, that, that God's will would be the defining characteristic of everything that they do. God isn't so, listen, this is super important. God isn't so concerned about what you do as he is why you do it. Are you doing it because you are filled with his will and his heart and his mind? Or are you doing it because you want to try to somehow earn his affection? That's legalism. The gospel is relieving because it says, God, you've already done everything. And my job now is just to stay tuned into that channel of what you've already done. That's my job. And God, you may want to send me to, uh, to the East Coast or the West Coast. You may want me to go to this church or that church. What matters is whether or not I'm functioning in a way that is consistent with your expressed will in the word. That's what matters. Well, God can speak. I'm not, I'm not downing asking the Lord for wisdom and guidance. Just don't spin out on it. Don't spin out. You know what his will is. Tune into it. That's what Paul's praying. He's praying that the Colossians would be a people that are consumed with serving and carrying out the will of Christ. Oh, man, that's my prayer for us, too. He's praying what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. All these things. First. Your first filling is, is what God is doing, what he's up to, his glory, his, pur his purpose. And by the way, the implication here is that if you're not being filled, this is important, if you're not being filled with the will of Christ, you're being filled with the will of the enemy, okay? This, this idea that your, your brain can just remain neutral, either you're filling your mind with God's will Either you're filling your mind with God's thoughts and God's words, or you're filling it with something else. There is no middle ground. Paul's prayer is that we would be so saturated with God's expressed heart and mind and will that we would carry it out without even having to think about it. You guys know what muscle memory is? Muscle memory is amazing. I used to hacky sack a lot when I was like a youth pastor guy because that's what you did. You know, you're like, I'm relevant. I hacky sack with kids, you know? <laughs> And so, like, that's what I did. And so I have this muscle memory of hacky sacking. And I, I'll drop something sometime. Where's Mike? This happened the other day. We were 
cleaning a house and I dropped something and I just went, boop, kicked it right back up. And Mike was like, oh, that was kind of cool. And I was like, that's because I hacky sacked for so many years. I have muscle memory, right? We want to ingrain into ourselves the will and the mind of Christ from what we know of his word so that when we go to make a decision, we don't have to freak out about it. We know what he cares about. We know what he thinks about. We know what is important to him. We know his heart. We know what's sin and what's not sin because he's told us. And the most important characteristic of what we do things is, is him. So what Paul's talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Remember how that word, what that word means there? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the, what? The will of God. God wants to transform our minds to think like him so that our bodies naturally are given over to him. It's our spiritual worship. Thinking's always been a big deal in Christianity. It's always been a big deal. It's really important. Thinking is not the gospel and thinking is not Jesus, but thinking about Jesus is really important. Thinking clearly and letting God's word shape your mind. So let me just give three things and then we have to end because I really wanted us to have some discussion. Three quick things. I'm going to fire them out. Practical ways to be filled with the knowledge of his will. First of all, learn it. Learn it. How do I learn it? Read the Bible. Read it. See what Christ emphasized. There's one really, really easy one. It's called, it's called the, 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 what's it called? The mandate. The, 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 to make disciples. <laughs> knowledge is real important. We should be smart. What's the word I'm looking for? The Great Commission. Thank you. Give that boy a cigar. No. Um, okay. The Great Commission is God's will. Here's another one. First Timothy uh, 2, 1 through 5. First of, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. Uh, blah, blah, blah. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. Did you know God desires all people to be saved? So what does that mean we should be doing? Caring about the lost. Making disciples. What is God's will? We care about the lost. We make disciples. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. Oh, that means I need to be thankful, no matter what's going on. Here's another one, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That means that you would grow up and look like Jesus. That's his will. Trying to make a decision, you say, well, what's, what's God's expressed will? Okay, so learn his will. Number two, surrender to his will. Surrender to his will. And, and this, this becomes tricky sometimes. We, we're all about reading our Bible sometimes. We're not about letting our Bibles read us. We're, we're all about getting into God's word sometimes. We're not about getting God's word into us. There is a difference between reading your Bible and letting your Bible rule you. Opening the scriptures and saying, God, this is calling me to something. And I will respond to it. Correct me through your scriptures. It just wrecked me. This week, I opened up Scott McKnight's commentary to study for this sermon, and in his preface, he says this. He says, why read a commentary? Let me get there. Why read a commentary? Let me get there. Why read a commentary? Let me offer a few observations. He says, I hope you're not reading this only to get stuff for your sermon. I was like, oh, <laughs> dang, caught me. Or for what you're teaching, or simply to resolve some debate. I was like, ouch. To read a commentary only for such a utilitarian aim is crass, if not irreligious. Whew. 
Of course, we all dip into commentaries for what we can get out of them, but I, I did not write this commentary, he says, for that purpose alone. The point of writing this commentary is existential or ontological. That means having to do with your person, your being. He says, I read Colossians to hear from God in order to become more like Christ. And I would ask any reader to redirect, redirect any reading of his letter to Christ-likeness. My prayer is that you and I will read in order to love God and love others more. This is so key. It's so key. When Paul prays that they would be consumed by the knowledge of God, he's not just talking about an intellectual ascent. He's talking about a surrendered submission to the reality of God's truth, which means that when we open this, we have to say, God, if there be any impurity in me, expose it. Change me to look like you, Christ. And lastly, we need to delight in his will. We need to delight in his will. You know, Christian maturity is when you stop doing things so God will bless you, and you start doing things because you really like to please him. And because he is the reward. He is your ultimate reward. Anything short leads to legalism, bondage, and religion. If you're trying to find God's will because you want him to be happy with you so he'll give you what you want, that just leads to bondage. Freedom comes when we say, God, I want your will because your will is the greatest thing I could ever have. I want your will because I want to please you. And that's a fruit only the Spirit can do. But those are, those are three things I would, I would have you guys consider. I didn't save any time for conversations. But I really want to do this. So I'm just going to ask Teresa for grace later. So let's do this. Let's break into groups. Everyone that has kids, give Teresa a massive hug and bring her coffee next week. Three questions I want you guys to discuss. I know we haven't done this in a while. I know this might be weird for some of you guys. Um, no pressure to talk, but let's break into four groups of four or five around your tables. Let's get into these questions. And the purpose of this is for us to be the body, to encourage one another in this particular area. So the questions are up here. Somebody could read them in your circle and begin to discuss. Um, if you know you have really wiggly kids, you can go get them and bring them back if you want. But let's just spend about 10 minutes getting into this in our circles. Let me pray really quickly. Lord, uh, I just pray, Father, that you would be in this time of conversation as we discuss these truths. Lord, give us thoughts from your spirit to encourage one another. Lord, uh, bless Teresa, Lord, as we go along, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's do it. Break into some groups.